Last week we talked about this subject of some principles of forgiveness. And I want to continue that study today in a little different light, a little different vein, so that we can finish a discussion about this, um, this whole subject. I, I'm a, I don't know how to, what to say, but I, I feel like I'm, I take a, an unusual position on this subject of, in particular of can you forgive somebody or should you forgive someone who doesn't repent? And um, it concerns me a little in that the position I take is probably not a common one, yet I don't know how to get around it. So I've studied about this some. We've talked about it other times. That isn't the focus of it. But I'm a little concerned about the opposite position that I'll talk about in a moment, that we are required to forgive people who do not repent when they do us wrong or commit a sin that we are required to automatically forgive them. I'm concerned about what that position means and how that works too, because I don't know that that's a a scriptural position. So there's room for understanding here, and I want you to take it that way as we discuss some of these things today. But the Bible's very clear about forgiveness. All of us need it, and we'd better be concerned about it, especially being forgiven by God. And we ought to be concerned about our offenses toward our fellow man, as Jesus himself made very clear in the model prayer in the book of Matthew and other places, that our our forgiveness from him is going to be determined to a large degree on whether we're willing to forgive other people. I think what this tells me when I read the New Testament in a general way, the impression I'm coming away with is at that time, people were not not very willing to forgive those who had wronged them. They held grudges very seriously, held them very closely to their chest, would not let that wrong be gone. They wouldn't even accept another person's attempt at an apology or to make amends. That doesn't sound very much different than today in a lot of places. People act like they're so nice in general, but when you wrong them, they're not. Uh, They carry this grudge for a long time, and I I'm afraid it's always been the same. Now, we looked at two or three principles just real briefly this this morning. We looked at the fact that what's required to even discuss the subject of of forgiveness is an attitude of humility, which is not thinking too highly of yourself. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. It's not thinking, it's thinking of yourself in the proper way. And it's also a willingness to defer to the desires of others. Unless you're willing to have humility or have humility or develop humility, you're not going to be able to do what Jesus says about this. Now, to this in this regard, the way I got these points, I didn't just make them up out of thin air. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Because in Matthew chapter 18, I don't have I don't have all of this scripture up here, but I have a little bit of it up here and we'll read the rest of it if you have a Bible. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus discusses forgiveness, but he does so from a different angle than we would altogether, I think. And he starts off by saying to them, uh, have I got the wrong verse here? Yes, I don't have the wrong verse here. Jesus says in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 of chapter 18, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
So he, who's the greatest? They want to know. I imagine from some other accounts, they're thinking he's going to name one of them, or maybe he's going to name all of them as a group. You, you disciples are the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe he's going to single out one of them. They're hoping they can be number one. It's like when kids would ask me when I taught school, who's your favorite student, Mr. Schmidt? Well, they weren't hoping I'd name Jody Faulkner. They were hoping I'd name them, you know. But they would always ask me this question. Of course, I'd gladly tell them, yes, you're my favorite student. And then I'd tell the other one, you're my favorite student. So got confusing. So what Jesus did, though, he called a little child to him and set him in the midst and said, surely I say to you, unless you're converted, converted means turned, changed direction, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So humility and humility like a child who doesn't think too highly of itself who's willing to depend upon others and defer to others, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are other characteristics, as we mentioned last week, of children that are not so nice. But Jesus singles out this characteristic to be to honor. Well, the other some other scriptures, Paul tells the Corinthians, stop being children, you know, grow up. Stop being children, put away childish things. So we know that children don't always have all good characteristics. But humility is one that in general is we should imitate. And yet adults lose this humility pretty quickly. So we said that in light of that humility, the first thing he tells them is we must avoid sin and avoid causing sin. We can cause others to sin. And so he goes on to say in this chapter, whoever receives me as a little child like this in my name, receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were cast into the sea or drowned in the depth of the sea. So he says here, be careful about offending these little ones. Now, that can be in the direct context interpreted to mean these children do things against these children that cause them problems. And that's a very current thing. I, I think this verse has been correctly, correctly, correctly quoted against these trans activists that are in our society today and homosexual activists. It has been precisely applied the same and correct way that they are attempting to bring dishonor and, and trouble upon little ones. Or else, why is it that they have to insist on going to public libraries for children's hour and having trans and having these drag queens at children's events or having children, if they weren't concerned about the children, they wouldn't be insisting that the children be there. So that's an attempt to cause one of these little ones to sin. Because what's going to happen, their whole purpose, since they can't reproduce on their own, their whole purpose is to recruit other young people to their cause change their lifestyle, which it is indeed very often very much a choice they can make, and they are going to change them to cause them to stumble. That's the entire point of it. Don't miss that point. Now, you may say that I'm a terrible person for saying that, but the truth is obvious, and it's going to become more obvious as time goes by. I'm old enough to remember back in the 1980s, when uh, the homosexual rights movement began to get steam in the United States, that people objected to this movement, and, and especially, in particular, when I was living down toward Miami, there was a, 
uh, gay rights amendment to their city charter or something going on down there. Oh, uh, and the accusation was made, you people are after our children. Oh, no, we're not. That's a slanderous lie. Well, time has shown that it was exactly correct. And this idea of a slippery slope is real. We've been on that slope for a long time. Now, this has nothing to do about mistreating anyone because of their actions. That's not what this is about. But it's about the idea of why is it that all of a sudden in the last two or three years, one quarter of teenage girls or young girls think that they're now uh, transsexual? When no statistic has ever been shown like that in the history of the world, But in the United States, all of a sudden, we've got one quarter of teenage girls saying that they're trans or queer. This is social contagion. Now, of course, the argument all along was from the homosexual movement was, and I'm off track already, but the whole argument was that this was genetic. You couldn't do anything about it. You were born that way. Remember that argument? Oh, that's long. Oh, you people are old school if you think that anymore. This isn't something that you're born with. They've forgotten that argument. Now you get to choose it. So which one is it? You either Are you choosing it or are you born that way? I'd say you need to pick one in your ideology and get it straight. But that just shows you that this is not about the truth. It's not about reality and that all of the social contagion going along. Someone is causing these little ones to stumble. Jesus says, It's a terrible thing to do that. Now, there are a lot of other applications to this, and we need to get back to our subject. But he tells them very very clearly that you should stop sinning, stop trying to get other people. In fact, he tells them about themselves in in verse 8, if your hand causes you to sin or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Stop sinning. That's how serious it is. And stop causing others to sin by what you do. Because you'll both be lost, you see. In this case, then he says we should try to clear up sin every way we can. We can't just go around sinning or having people sin against us and just let it go. We need to be the kind of people that are trying to clear sin up because sin's going to happen between people. Offenses are going to come, he says, things that make people stumble. We're going to sin against others. They're going to sin against us. And we need to try to clear that up. We're bound to do that. And he said, here, here's how he expresses it. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> this is, Ma- this is Matthew 18 again. Same chapter, verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, we can discuss the ins and outs of applying this verse down at the congregational level or individual level. And I've done so over the years many times and can talk to you about many different instances of trying to apply this because I think this is a critically under uh, uh, misunderstood or under-understood. Can you do under-understanding? I don't know if that's the right word or not. But it isn't understood well and not applied well. It's ignored by Christians and by churches of Christ all over the country. It's ignored as a process. And because of that, 
Problems multiply in churches. It's ignored in marriages. Ignored. And therefore, marriage problems proliferate, and before, before you know it, divorce is at the door. Because this pro- process, this understanding is not practiced. And I could spend weeks talking about this to you, and I won't do that this morning for sake of time. But I, he says, if someone sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You have an obligation as a Christian to go to someone who has done you wrong. You don't want to go to someone who's sinned. It's their problem. They sin, they should come to you. Okay, well, that's covered in Matthew 5. Because in Matthew 5, he says, if you go to the altar and realize your brother has something against you, then you go and be reconciled to your brother, then bring your gift. Jesus says it's always your turn to go. Whether you've been sinned against or whether you sinned against somebody, you need to go and straighten this out. That's how serious Jesus is about it. Makes it very clear early in his ministry, plainly what you ought to do. But this is painful. This is very difficult to do in real life. And we try our best to avoid it in different ways. We have many subterfuges to avoid going and trying to confront someone about a problem or difficulty. Now, there are some things that happen between two people that we don't like them, and therefore we can we can just ignore it and go on about our way. My grandfather and grandmother had an expression, well, this is a Kentucky expression, that something would stick in your crawl, they would say. Stick in your crawl. Okay? Haven't heard that in a while, have you, Stuart? Yeah, yeah that's that's old. That's old. That's right. I grew up with that expression. See, a chicken has a crop. It's a pre-stomach on the front of the chicken. They eat stuff. It goes in there, and then slowly it goes from there down into the gizzard where it's ground up and and uh, makes that gizzard strong so it tastes so delicious. But anyway, it, uh, it you go to the gizzard, then on into the rest of the digestive tract. But the crop is where things are stored, and sometimes things get stuck in that. My grandfather would say, boy, go tell, go tell the woman, that's what he called my grandmother, to get you a needle and thread and boil me a needle and thread. So I go up there and tell mom, I say, she, poppy wants a needle and thread. So she'd boil one of them in a pot, hand it to me and I'd take it down there and he'd take his pocket knife out. He'd cut that chicken open right here, reach in there and pull all that stuff out. You'd find a big rock or you, chickens eat everything. They do it on purpose. They need something to grind up their food. So they eat screws and nails and pieces of glass and that's what they eat. And it, usually it's fine in there. It all, it just helps to grind the, the muscle of the, of the crop just grinds it up or in the gizzard. But sometimes they swallow it and it can't go past the crop. It just won't go down and then the swap of crop will get swollen. It'll start swinging to and fro. It gets soured. It's awful. They're going to die if they don't fix that. And so he'd cut them open. And he'd hold the chicken. I'm holding the chicken. He'd stitch it back up when he got done. Chicken was fine. Wow. Huh? No anesthesia. No, it was fine. It doesn't. Yeah, no, we, we didn't have any anesthesia. Uh, anyway, I can tell you some other stories about anesthesia, though, but that's another whole deal. Uh, anyway... The point is, some things you can swallow, some things you can't. It may be something big, it may be something little. When something happens between you and somebody else, and you just can't get it on down, you are obligated to go and talk to them about it alone and try to fix it. You have an obligation. That is an astounding instruction for human behavior. It will change your marriage. It will change your marriage quickly 
if you begin to do that. At first, it'll be very painful and disruptive, but that's okay. It needs to be because you need to figure these things out. And sometimes it's small things like your your deodorant ain't cutting anymore, you know, (laughs) and you need to tell them. The other things is more serious. I don't like this about the way you've been treating me or the way you treat me around your mother or whatever it may be that need to be talked about. It can be big or small. Go, and if they won't hear you and you still can't get over the problem, you're going to have to go another level. You're going to have to go and help get someone to help you. And that's true in churches. I've seen this about blow churches up. Because what we'd rather do when someone sins against us is go talk to our best friend, sister so-and-so, or put it on Facebook or Instagram what they did to me. That's what we'd rather do. I think that's what they did in Jesus' time. That's what they did usually. And so it blows things up. So this is what he says here about this problem of them uh, not trying to clear up sin as it were. Now then, the thing we really wanted to get to this morning, which we'll just spend some, I can spend a long time on this one, is what Jesus says next. And, and that, really, as what, when Peter hears this, he asks a question about it. And what Jesus says is, you need to forgive other people 70 times 7. That's 400 for you. Um, I don't know if modern math, I'm sure some say there's no correct answer to 2 plus 2 is 4. But in this case, I'll just be that kind of radical person to tell you this is 490 times. Can you handle the truth? that this is 490, 70 times 7 and 490 times. Hope you can handle that truth. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And we discussed last week, seven times, and other passages say seven times in a day, seven times in a, about the same offense is plenty. If there's a brother or sister in this group or family member of yours, that has sinned against you seven times total in their life, you're going to think twice about interacting with that person. I guarantee you. You are going to have a problem with that person. They're the one you're going to avoid at family reunions. They're the one you're going to avoid at Thanksgiving. Now, if seven times in a day, why, it's unthinkable. So Peter wasn't being a, a, a bad person, unforgiving person. He was almost exaggerating how many times you forgive somebody for doing something wrong. And the implication is they they haven't even tried to make it right. Who knows? But they've done seven times. We we talked illustration about that last week. You can listen to the recording on wearejustchristians.com. Oh, I have a bumper sticker for that somewhere, don't I? Anyway, you can can listen to the recording there of, of the sermon from last week. And Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 490 times. Peter's jaw dropped. What's Jesus' point? Is it realistic that someone could actually sin against us 490 times in one day? So how many, how many hours in a day? There's 24 divided into 490. You know, you're still, you're at, uh, what, over 10 times an hour that somebody is sending against you? I don't even know what the arithmetic is. Somebody else could do that. I just thought of that. It's something completely unrealistic, almost impossible. So he isn't talking about 
keeping track, and he isn't talking about some idea that this is actually going to happen. What he's talking about is your willingness to forgive should extend to 490 times in a day. Your willingness to forgive. That's what a lot of these passages about forgiveness are addressed at that subject, the willingness on your part to forgive. That's the real obstacle in this, is people's willingness to forgive. People are not willing to forgive. When you forgive something, you give up power. You give up your position. You give up power. You give up control. You you let it go. That's what forgiveness really means, partly. is One of the words used in the New Testament for forgiveness is to let go of something. And when you let go of it, the other person retains the power, and they get the power back. If you hold on to that offense... You hold on to that offense that they don't. As long as you hold on to it, you've got it. You've got power over them. You can always bring it up, and you do bring it up. When they do wrong, you remind them of what they did before, and you bring it up again, and it's been unresolved, and so it gets worse, and you retain the power. This is so human. This is the way it's always been. It's destructive. It's the way it is now in society. But Jesus says you need to be willing to forgive my people must be different than the people around them. Now, in verse 23, Jesus tells a story, a parable on down further in this chapter. I don't know what's wrong. And I want to contrast then here God's attitude versus our attitude about this and then talk more about this forgiveness thing. In verse 23, he, I don't have the scriptures up here for this. I didn't put them on here, various reasons. But Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, this king, in this case, possibly is God or Christ. And when he begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, if I wrote it down here somewhere, is about $170 million dollars. Is there any way a slave in that day and age could ring up a debt of $170,000? Not possible. If, if I gave you, I saw this one time, if I gave any one of you a million dollars and told you you can keep it if you can spend it in one day, but you got to spend it all. You can't have a mortgage. You can't be waiting for the bank to get back with you. Came waiting for the car dealer to sign the papers. You got to spend a million dollars in one day and then you can keep it. It's been shown that you can't do it. Okay. So how does a guy who's a slave rack up this kind of debt? He can't. It's a, it's an imaginary number. What it's meant to mean is he has a debt that he could never repay. That's what this means. Okay. Think about that. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, that all that he had, that payment be sold. Just take this man, sell him, sell his wife, his children to the highest bidder. It don't matter if you separate him or not. Sell everything he's got and bring me the money. That's all I need. Whatever it is. He's going to, what do they call that today? Um, cutting your losses. Something like that. There's other phrases for that. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now that means he didn't say, okay, you can pay me later. It just means, okay, I'm going to erase the debt. But that servant, see, see the master here gave up all his power. 
But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about a dollar forty. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay you all. Now that's a debt that could be paid. But he won't, but he's not going to let him. But he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that he had, what he had done, they were very grieved. They came and told the master all that he had done. Then the master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as he, I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly father also will do to you, each one of you, from your heart, who does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now this passage, I think the difference here is, uh, what have I got down here? Um, I got it somewhere here. Ten million dollars versus a dollar seventy. That's the two difference in the two debts. Now, this passage is about being willing to forgive. And it's about repenting before you forgive. This man, The master did not forgive the debt of $10 million until there was repentance. He said, pay me what you owe. And then fell down and begged him to forgive him. Begged him to forgive him. Begged him to give him time. I'll do what I, I'll pay back the debt. I will, rep, I repent. I'll make restitution to you. And so once that happened, then the master was moved with, with compassion and forgave him. He repented. The man and God, based on that, forgave him the debt. When does God forgive our debt without us repenting? He doesn't. I use this illustration because people use it the other way. And I, this is one that gets me in trouble. On the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And people use that as an illustration to say, see, God forgives, and he just, Jesus just forgives everybody, and he forgave everybody on the, did Jesus forgive anybody on the cross? And the answer is no. Did God forgive anybody because Jesus asked him to? What's the answer to that question? Did God forgive the world for killing Jesus because Jesus asked him to? The answer is no, he did not. Because 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and told those very same people, repent and be baptized for remission of your sins. He accused them of putting to death the Son of God. They were still guilty. They had not been forgiven by God, even though Jesus asked for it. Why? Because they had not repented. That's why. Once they repented, God forgave them. So you need to have the willingness of Jesus to forgive those who sin against you. You need to have the willingness to forgive the debt. But that doesn't mean the debt can be forgiven until there's repentance. That's the problem with this whole thing. Now, well, you shouldn't hold on to grudges. I agree. Holding on to a grudge is different than forgiving someone for doing wrong. Now, I want you to see the difference in these two things, though. The point of, the point of these verses is that we should have compassion on those who wrong us when they show a willingness to change, we should have compassion on them instead of taking them by the throat and demanding everything from them. We should have compassion. And so we should go beyond forgiveness if we can. 
We should go beyond the minimum of just holding a grudge and minimally forgiving him and, and uh, spitting out a few words. See, that's the trouble. And here's, what I'm, here's where I think this is a problem. We see so many athletes, movie stars, blah, blah, blah. They do something really horrendous. And Instagram celebrities, they do something really horrendous. And then they get on the TV and they say, I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did. I'm sorry you're so stupid to be offended. And it's a shame you were offended, but I'm, but I'm really sorry that you did. So we all don't take that apology seriously. Nobody does. We all know they just got to say it so they can keep doing what they're doing, keep raking in the money or whatever else. They just got to say it. They let them play baseball again if they say it. They just got to say something. And so there's this forced apology that doesn't mean anything's really going to be any different or anything's going to change. And we have learned that cheap grace and cheap forgiveness is good enough. It's not good enough. <coughs> Now, I'm not in favor of taking somebody by the throat and demanding them to pay back the debt, but I am in favor of them actually repenting. This verse we just read says, from the heart. The repentance comes from the heart, and the forgiveness comes from the heart. That's the difference. So we ought to hold people accountable. I, I gotta, and I don't want to take too much more time on this because I've, I've got a lot more things to say. I think I can find it here somewhere. I found a sermon outline in my files. It's not my sermon. If it is, I need to be uh, flogged. I need to be corrected. Because I disagree with my... I, it's not my sermon. Um, but I found it. It, it was on forgiveness. And um, it makes a few good points at the beginning. But, they're contra- but it contradicts itself. And I want you to think about this. Because this is what you've heard most of your life, I think. That forgiveness is necessary... Our own forgiveness by God depends on our being willing to forgive others. I agree with that. Jesus is very clear. If you won't forgive other people when they wrong you, God won't forgive you uh, when you when you forgive your trespasses. He's very clear about this in the beginning of his ministry. Then he says it's commanded by God to, to forgive others. So he quotes Matthew chapter eleven or Mark chapter eleven. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, what this is meant, to, what this is taken as, when you stand there and you realize you have something against someone, you forgive him. It's meant to say that you just should forgive people who have done wrong, whether they have repented or not. You should just forgive them automatically. So, and what that would mean to me is Jesus is not saying you just wait till you pray to do it. Someone comes up and does you wrong. I think if you take the Bible, if you take that view, you would be required to instantaneously forgive that person while they're still pummeling you, while they're still beating you into the ground, while they're in the middle of robbing you or kidnapping your child. If they kidnap your child, you're supposed to be forgiving them while they're driving away with your child. If it's just whenever somebody sins against you, you forgive them, that's what it would mean. Can that really be what Jesus means here? No, once again, he's talking about the willingness to forgive. And he's talking about, without saying it here in this verse, a lot of other things that go in between that, you see, that are, that are often overlooked. And so he says, what's required? Now, then he, go, then he goes and gets on the right track again. What's required of those 
involved to, who seek forgiveness. What's required of someone who seeks forgiveness? Well, repentance is required. Restitution is required. Uh, give away any feeling of vengeance. An intention not to repeat the offense. All those things are required for someone seeking forgiveness. And I agree with that. That's exactly the problem. We don't demand that. We don't demand that anybody change. We don't demand that they truly understand their actions or recognize them. We don't demand that they make any restitution for the wrong that they've done. We just are supposed to, as nice Christians, just say, I forgive you and go on. The trouble is, we don't do that, nor can we do that very well. We always hold, are going to keep something there inside. Now he says we must restore the relationship and feelings that existed prior to the offense. If we're supposed to forgive someone when they sin against us automatically without any repentance, how does that work? That we're supposed to, what does it say again? We must restore the relationship and feelings that existed prior to the offense. So someone kidnaps your child, or maybe you got an uncle that takes your child and sexually molests the child, never asks for forgiveness, lies about it. You're supposed to automatically forgive that person and restore the relationship like it was before the offense, with no repentance. Do you believe that's what the Bible teaches? I don't. I don't think I can find that in the New Testament at all, unless you just take this passage of forgiving without repentance, pull it out of its context. You see, that kind of that kind of thing would require you would be, I think, obligated to to try to seek that person's repentance and force the issue until there came repentance or refusal to repent. And you could not restore the relationship until that happened. See, we like to think of little things like people uh, call saying a bad word to us. But let's talk about real sin sometime, like the one I just mentioned. And all of a sudden it changes because we see the seriousness of it. This is what's wrong with society in a lot of ways. People are often not held to account to try to restore that. We, we can, uh, are not commanded by Christ to restore the relationship of those who sin against us in that way unless there's been a change through actual repentance and forgiveness. And um, uh, there's a bunch of other things in here. Let me get to one. Let me look at one more thing here before we stop. I can find the right thing here. I don't want to beat this all to death, but the other thing he says whether we are to forgive another of a wrong committed to uh, against us in no way depends on doing uh, on his doing anything. We are to forgive him, period. Listen to that. Whether we forgive another of a wrong committed against us in no way depends on him doing anything. Now, there are so many New Testament passages that talk about the obligation of a person who sins against another to go and make it right. And We are to forgive him, period. doesn't depend on him doing anything. I, I don't think that's what this scripture teaches. I've seen, just difficult, I've seen as a young preacher, starting out when I was 22 years old, and some of the, in the first place I ever preached, I ran into this problem where there was, there was persistent sin among a couple of the members, repeated sin against other members and against their, that person's neighbors. It was never dealt with. The person would just come forward and say, I haven't been living as I should. And then everybody's supposed to forgive him and go on. One of the sisters 
wasn't there for a few weeks. This one sister I'm talking about. She wasn't at church for a few weeks. I didn't know why. Nobody really knew why. Well, it come to light that the reason she wasn't there is because she'd been in jail. She was on weekend jail because she'd been caught shoplifting with the other Christian. One of the other Christian ladies was with her in a store. She gets arrested for shoplifting in the store. Nobody says nothing about anything. She goes and serves her jail sentence. And the answer to that was, why I was upset about this. This needs to be brought out. This needs to be uh, understood by everybody that something's going on. Because the re- the behavior keeps repeating itself. It wasn't like that was a one-off. It was, the whole thing was repeating itself. Well, she came forward and said she had, hadn't been living right, so we all forgave her, and that took care of it. Really? That takes care of it? Coming up here in the front and giving a generic confession of not living right means I have to forgive you? For getting publicly shaming the rest of the church. The neighbors took up a petition against these folks, this family, to make them move from the neighborhood. There was so much trouble at that house, so many police visits, so much trouble, so much drinking, so much fighting. The neighbors got a petition up to have them move. These are members of the church. But it had never been addressed by anyone because after all, they said they were sorry in the front row. Over a period of years. What did that do to the church? It caused a lot of problems. It caused prob- problems with them teaching their neighbors, that's for sure, because, well, I can't go any further. We're already over time. But, you see, we need to then, before a problem gets like that, find, try to find out how to do it. Try to find out how to fix it in your life, in your friend's life, and try to address it. And, and it be, be, it can be unpleasant and unsettling, but there is no other answer. And I can tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not just to say, well, you know, they must be sorry. They have to be sorry. Don't project your feelings of sorrow, how you would feel if you did that onto them. They might not have those feelings. You can't say, well, I'd be sorry if I did that. Well, that's not them. You need to under, you need to deal with that problem directly. All right. Be willing to forgive. Bend over backwards to forgive. Try to forget everything that happens wrong against you that you can't. Don't hold grudges. Do not, do, do not take big offense at small things. But when there is a problem, you need to address it. And it's painful to do. Have the courage as a Christian to do that. Alright, our time is up, way past up this morning. I just think this is an important subject that I struggle with. Maybe I need to, maybe I need to put in a, few more scriptures and look at some other things involved in this. I don't know. I'll, you, I'll be willing to hear your input on that. But in any event, let's, let's this morning now pause to sing number 380, Just As I Am. And I want to emphasize with you about something before we sing this song. This song is intended to motivate you to obey the gospel of Christ or to repent of your sins. God will not forgive until you repent. He makes that very clear in the Bible. Until you change your mind about the way you live and have lived, till you change your mind about your sins and come to Him and repent of those sins, He does not forgive. He's willing. He's like the Father that's looking for that son to come back home, but He will not forgive until you repent. That's the hard truth about our Heavenly Father. Does He expect more of me than Him? I, I don't know, but I know this. You need to understand that if you still are living a life of sin, and not repenting of it, that you're in danger, danger of eternal judgment. 
If you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ. Your sins have not been forgiven. Repent and be baptized this morning for the remission of those sins. And we're here, here this morning to help you in every way that we can. So if we, as we sing this song, you come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.